Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I'm here with a very exciting guest in Laura Terrell. Laura is an executive coach that works specifically with lawyers. I'm super excited to have her on the podcast. And uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on. But just wanted to start off with the listeners. Let's get into it. It's a pretty interesting place you found yourselves. How did you do executive coaching for lawyers? Thanks, first of all, for having me on today. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and it's great to be a guest. So I guess I would start by saying I was a practicing lawyer in my first career for over 25 years. I was a lawyer in private practice, in government, and in-house, and I was really passionate about the law. Like a lot of people that go into lawyering, I was always really happy making zealous arguments on behalf of my clients and being their advocate, crafting arguments, thinking about the best evidentiary bases that we had for things. I was both a trial and appellate lawyer. And... I really enjoyed that aspect of lawyering. I liked the love of the law. But I was also interested in something else very early on in my career, which was the business of lawyering, particularly working in law firms. And I know you work with a number of people in the law firm industry. The business of law firms has really changed. It was different when I started practicing law many years ago. And I think the demands for lawyers to be savvy business operators are even more so now. I found that not a lot of lawyers were great business or marketing professionals, particularly for their own practice. And one of the things that I was really passionate about was learning the law, learning the financial responsibilities. How do you run a business? How do you figure out what the best financial management is to make your practice attractive, to make it successful? Also, how do you find a way to brand yourself and really set yourself apart? And also in conjunction with that business of lawyering, How do you learn to survive, but also thrive, particularly in a big law environment where there's so much stress? Lawyers, I think, experience a high degree of professional almost every day. There's a worry about whether you're going to be able to sustain your business. There's a worry about whether you're going to make partner. And often you feel really alone. You really feel very, very isolated. You can't share a lot of your concerns, even maybe with some of your closest colleagues. One of the things I always liked doing as a lawyer was listening to the people, whether they were people that were my colleagues, people that reported to me, clients. And some of the most rewarding moments I've had have been not only as someone's counsel, but also as just their trusted advisor or a friend or a mentor. And after a number of years working in a really intense environment myself as a lawyer, I started realizing I was losing the ability to provide that mentoring and have that connection in a meaningful way. It coincided with some shifts in my personal life that made me really consider what I wanted to do next as an attorney. And I decided to embark on coaching, really to try to tap into some of the things that I had found so powerful, that ability to work with people on a business plan, on a personal brand and marketing, and just on an emotional well-being level in terms of being a lawyer and in an active practice. So that's been terrific for me. I I really enjoyed that aspect of work. And it's been an interesting conversion to now be on the management side, not on the lawyer inside per se. Yeah. 
and so much to go from on that, but it's kind of interesting. I never really thought of this before, but you know, you can actually, I think there's more of a crossover than people realize between, you know, potentially campaigning for yourself within the big law environment and, you know, running a small practice or being out on your own in both contexts is probably a little bit more obvious that how, you know, immediate the feedback is if you're branding your marketing's off when you're out on your own, but at the same time too, um, if you could be a fantastic lawyer, but if you're not branding yourself well internally, then, you know, there's actually a, one of my favorite ops coaches likes to use this term, the, uh, you know, the talented a-hole, but no one wants that guy. right? <laughs> uh, but anyway, like, you know, let's, uh, let's kind of start with that. So for people that might be in like a big law context right now, like how does personal branding affect one's career before any, somebody ends up striking out on their own? I think it's really important to be thinking about what your personal brand is, even if you work for a well-known law firm either in the market that you're in or one that's well-known globally or another country, I think it's really important that you have a sense of what your personal brand is. And by that, I mean, even understanding who's my target clients, who are the clients that I can really serve the best? What are the services that I provide that I really have a unique expertise in or that I want to develop a unique expertise in to be able to service clients? And what do I want my clients to think about me at the end of the day? Jan really knows my business better than I know it myself. It's like talking to somebody who really gets the business aspect of my work. But if you can get to that point, I think you have a real sense of who you want to be throughout your career, regardless of where you are. Maybe you're in a big law firm now. Maybe you want to go to a smaller law firm. Maybe you want to strike out on your own. But I think having a sense of who you are, who you serve, what your expertise is, and how you want people to think about you when they think about you as somebody they engage with. That's awesome. And it's cool too, because I've gained kind of a appreciation for how much of a crossover they have these things in the same time. Because if you think about the situation, like, you know, going on partnership track is sort of a, you know, it's an entrepreneurial journey kind of on its own too, but it's more of like, I guess what people would classically call like an entrepreneur. But, you know, if you think about the scope of somebody's career, if you build a brand around being a certain thing, you know, known quantity, if you ever want to jump ship and, you know, if you've done this successfully and you're making it rain at the firm that you're at, then, you know, guess who's going to be making more money next year? Guess who they're not going <laughs> to ever going to really think about letting go if that ends up being the case. And if you want to make the decision to go out and strike out on your own, then guess what you start out with day one, like your, your brand, right? So kind of falling out on that, like, how do you recommend people start thinking about this? Because I feel like it's a big open-ended question. And I know certainly some of the lawyers that we've worked with kind of tend to get paralyzed by those sort of things. So how would you recommend somebody start in, um, you know, getting to think about what people think about them? I think a great way to start is by asking if you have existing clients and you're working with them, getting some feedback. I think one of the, the biggest mysteries to me in law is why people don't ask their clients for feedback more. What was great about working with me? Or what could I have done differently on that engagement? What was it that made you reach out to me or to my firm in the first place? Getting that feedback from clients is important. Another thing I often recommend, especially for attorneys who come to me and are trying to make partner at their law firms, and they're trying to figure out what's that partnership look like. One of the first things I tell them is, have you had a conversation with some of the people that you've worked for? Do you know how partners in the firm perceive you? Do you know how associates think of you? A great opening question is to say to the people that know you best from your work internally at your firm, what do you think my strengths are? What is it that you like working with me? What makes you like working with me? You've come to me on a couple of cases. What do you think my path might look like? For example, I work with a client right now who asked those questions and saw herself in a certain role. But when she went to partners, one of the things they said to her was, 
you really manage matters well across offices, across case teams, and across geographies. She did not see herself that way. She saw herself as an expertise in a particular area of the law, which was great, but she was also a terrific manager and a terrific client and colleague collaborator who could really work well and almost seamlessly across teams. And I think that gave her a distinction in the partnership process and helped her identify a different part of her brand. So I think getting that feedback from both your clients and your colleagues is a great place to start. It takes a little bravery because sometimes yeah. we don't always want to ask, what do you think of me? But I think it's a terrific place to begin getting that feedback and getting that data and information. Yeah. I feel like I might know the answer to this, but have you ever recommended a client go ahead and ask that question of their you know, peers and colleagues? And has that ever gone badly for someone that you recommended it for? I have clients that have gotten different information than they expected. I think most clients that are committed to asking that question have a good sense that they are successful and that they are going to get some positive feedback. I think clients that have said to me, you know, I don't know that I want to ask that question or I kind of know what's going to be said, have some sense that maybe something's not as strong as, as they would like for them at their firm. But I think the initial conversations that I have are usually centered around relationship. If you feel like you have a good profile as a lawyer in your firm or with your clients, you're going to feel comfortable asking those questions and you're going to get largely positive feedback. But again, you may learn something different like that one client did with respect to a different facet of her profile and her brand. Yeah, gotcha. And then that's the other thing too, like even if it's a situation where things aren't necessarily where you want it to be, I feel like, you know, clients and people that you might be working with would probably appreciate that you're at least looking to work on that, right? Absolutely. And I ask for feedback from my clients in coaching because the feedback I'm going to get from them is different than what I got when I was practicing law. And I had one client that gave me feedback that I sort of said to myself, yeah, I wish I'd thought of that because I kind of knew that might be a good way to help augment my practice. But this client said it out loud and said it directly to me in a way that I had been sort of shying away from. So I think people can give you all kinds of insights, sometimes into things that are sort of hovering in the background, but you're not quite ready to acknowledge. Yeah. And that's cool. And then, you know, just to get a little super tactical on this, and this might be a selfish question. <laughs> in the course of potentially uh, managing relationships, like that, what's the right time to ask for it? I feel like, you know, and I'll, I'll just kind of be out in the open about this. Like we've had stuff, we've had this, these, these discussions internally here at Casey And I feel like one of the situations is that like, if you have situations where things are mostly good, maybe it's an eight out of 10 and you feel like the 10 out of 10 is around the way. A lot of the time, you know, we've had issues with asking for these because we want to really ask it on a high note. So how do you build a process to really get this going consistently? And, and what part of an engagement, be it something that's more of a services thing or, you know, legal uh, relationship with a client, like what's the right time to ask for this feedback? So a good example of not asking for the feedback enough is associates and law firms that wait for evaluation time every year and assume that they'll get feedback at evaluation time. And they will. What about all those months in between where you don't know, are you doing a good job? And maybe you work for a really busy partner that doesn't have time to engage. And I push those clients, you need to go in and ask, even when things are busy, even if you can get five minutes. If you're working with an outside client, I think, which is what you're talking about, Jan, mm -hmm. I think a good way to, to kind of force yourself to get that feedback, even when it's not the eight out of 10 or the 10 out of 10 feeling is to have a process. I always say to clients, 
I'm going to check in with you when we're six months into this project, or we're going to have feedback at the end, but I'm also going to check in with you six months in. And I want you to tell me if you want to check in more frequently and just do a, a gut check. How's everything going? Are you getting the level of service that you want? What's our timing been like? I know we've had some things that we've had to case correct as we've gone through this. Is there anything you feel like we could be doing differently? But I think if you set up those regular check-ins, it doesn't feel like, well, I'm not sure if I really want to check this one right now because right. it's feeling a little bit tough. But I think having a, a process and a timing to do it and not just waiting a year for the evaluation or till the end of the project. No, that's really awesome. And honestly, I'm going to be taking notes to get back to the team on that one. Because I think that's fantastic. I think a lot of the hesitation that we've had personally, and I don't know if anyone who listens is having the same thing, is that, yeah, like making a decision about when to ask and also thinking about the optics of that, right? It's like, you know, if you're asking it, like people you know, have situations where they might infer something from you asking for feedback at a particular point. But if you communicate up front and you have the process that you hold to yourself, then there's no worries about all that stuff. So that's super interesting, really helpful, Laura. And sorry for the uh, absurd deep dive on <laughs> that individual topic, but circling a little bit back up, we're, we're talking about branding. So we know what people might be thinking about us. One of the things I've always thought about in terms of branding, and you know, I really like your brand because I don't know if you've ever seen this, like the people who are like branding for, it's not that again, you have a, you have a broader practice. I really, there's a, there's a certain archetype I know of like a branding person and they've got these zany colored glasses and they have like the soy face, uh, crazy stuff on their thing. And they're <laughs> like, oh yeah, blah, blah. and there's a level that's too much on that. But how do you take what you know from your brand. Again, obviously, uh, you know, without even having to say, you know, most attorneys are going to be less open to that than even most, like, you know, general business owners. But how can you take that information and start campaigning, whatever that ends up being, without it seeming like it's inauthentic? That's a great question. I think part of that lies in trying to determine how you absorb that into your practice. If you are in practice as a bankruptcy lawyer, and you think your brand is really around being an incredibly in tune person on the latest issues in bankruptcy law, that's easy, right? I mean, that's your brand. You fits perfectly with your practice. But what if part of your brand is that you have a great sense of humor and you always have an upbeat approach with your grasp of when a situation is fraught or tense, how to get the team back on track, how to keep people positive, maybe even after a loss in court. That's a little something different that I think you have to think about maybe how do you put that into that bankruptcy practice? Bankruptcy moves really quickly. People can get really frustrated. I'll give you a good example. I worked with an attorney that was a trial lawyer and was really struggling to keep the tempo of the team upbeat. And I think the tempo of the team that she was working with was great when they were not in the throes of trial, but when they're in a really, really tense situation at trial, that whole dynamic can change. But trying to take that brand outside of trial when you're maybe having drinks after work or you're having an in-office lunch and thinking about how do I take aspects of my character that really address the tense moments, get the team back on track, get everybody thinking more positively is to put yourself in what worked at the lunch, what works when we're outside of the courtroom, but we're in the trial and we've had a real setback or a bad ruling. How can I take aspects of that and move that into my character there? Sometimes that's a real struggle because that's an aspect of personality that really infuses your brand, but it's also something that may not feel as natural in some situations. You don't want to force it, but you want to ask yourself, 
what's working in those other times outside of that really fraught tense situation that I can apply here. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because I've been, you know, thinking about this recently. We have this situation where a lot of people are working remote. A lot of people are making office kind of optional. So we have the situation where our work life is like, I guess, percentage wise, most of the interactions you're having with coworkers are all business. So you almost have to manufacture those things outside of it so that you have the other times to kind of work, right? I think you do. And the future of our working life is going to be remote or hybrid in many respects. I think we're all seeing that it's unlikely that people that work in office situations previously are going to go back to an office on a full-time basis. So trying to find those moments is important. One of the things that I think is, is often a good technique is to think of, all right, how did I connect with this person before the great migration to working remote? Maybe you chatted about tennis. Maybe you caught up about US Open. Maybe you talked about what you were seeing at Wimbledon this year. A great way to catch up with that person when you're not in the office anymore is sending them a note about the great match you just saw with Jakovic last week, or being able to uh, see if, if they are going to be looking for tickets to a certain event as things are coming back into the more in-person realm and trying to find different ways of connecting with them in a way that's personal. And, and I think that feeds into just how we develop relationships generally at work. It's more important now more than ever to have relationships that are really based upon communication and engagement, not just feeling transactional, like you're trying to sell something or get somebody to do work or check it on whether their work's getting accomplished. You want to have a better, more robust, more wholesome relationship, I think, with the people that you work with, that you really value them as people. Otherwise, they're just going to see you through the lens of the Zoom camera. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's definitely you know it's it's a tough situation, but like I think uh, it's it's doable, and I mean it, it takes a lot of work at the end of the day too. You have to be deliberate about this stuff. I kind of wonder sometimes about the people in my life that are just seem to have like such an effortless way to keep in touch with all those people. How much of those are actual naturals, and how much of those are actually putting some serious effort into it? But I think the dividends are worth it at the end of the day. So okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. And let's go all the way from the end of the spectrum of the marketing and branding side, all the way to the numbers. So let's talk about firm finance. I know this is something that's, I've met some people on a lot of different ends of the spectrum as far as the folks that we've worked with, but um, what do you think, just to fire it off for, like, what do you think are, are the challenges that a lot of attorneys face these days, or at least people coming into your practice as far as, you know, firm finances and profitability and that kind of stuff? A lot of people that I talk with, even those that are up against a partnership track and in partnership promotion process right now, don't really understand the finances and the economics of a business. Not just a law firm, but the finance and economics of business. And that I think is really fundamental. If you think your role in the law firm is just to bill a lot of hours and to work on great cases, that's terrific. But under Lying that is a whole wealth of data and information that your law firm, regardless of the size, is going to look at. For example, if you have a great client that you do, let's say, $300,000 worth of work for every year consistently, but the client only pays you for $200,000 worth of that work, maybe because you discount it or because the client pays late or you offer certain discounts on work, you're only getting 66% return on the work that you've done. That's not a great return for most businesses. It's going to depend on your margins, of course. But many people I talk to have never really thought about that. They assume, 
well, I have all this infrastructure and this finance team and people in my firm that worry about things like that. And I get paid at the end of the month, at the end of the two-week period. But if you're going to really succeed as a partner and a manager in a law firm or strike out on your own in a law firm, you better understand the economics of things like realization on your return, what accounts receivables really, really are. Some people don't think about those. That's a new phrase for them. I often hear, I didn't go to business school. I, I wanted to be a lawyer. But managing the legal business that you have is incredibly important. Understanding those terms, getting your hands around them, even sitting down. I often recommend sitting down with somebody in the, the chief finance officer's office and saying, can you walk me through how I find out my data? And can you explain to me what my data looks like when somebody in management or leadership is looking at it? A lot of attorneys have not done that, and it just doesn't connect for them until they see, wait a minute, this is, this is sort of like in my personal life if I have uh, $1,000 left in my checking account, but I'm trying to write you know, checks or do debits for $1,250. It doesn't click until you put it in a business context. And I think often people really need to spend some time immersed with the business leaders, the finance people in their firms to understand that. Certainly as a small business owner and an entrepreneur, you need to understand that before you start up and start incurring all kinds of expenses and you don't know where the revenue is going to come from to cover that. Yeah. Well, I'll also say too, there's kind of another side to the coin too. So it's like, you know, as far as your own career advancement, it's absolutely super important to know, you know, what kind of contributions you're making. But no, I'm thinking for also for all the leaders out there, it's great that we're getting people to ask this stuff, but how much better would it be if we didn't have to? And more firms are putting this out there and, and getting people in the know of what it is that actually hits the bottom line as far as the work they're doing. There are firms that are doing that and they provide some insight, but it's almost necessary to give a boot camp to associates when they start. It's necessary to give an update every year and say, okay, we've covered the basics, which is here's how much you have to bill to be able to cover the expense of not just your salary, but your health insurance, the overhead, the real estate we pay for our firm. And to give those updates periodically at each stage of an attorney's career, give them the chance to ask questions. We're doing things like talking about how you develop an expertise as an e-discovery leader or as a structured finance attorney. But those are your substantive skills as lawyers. By and large, law firms are, could be doing more to give that education, as you suggest, upfront on the managing of a legal business. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Like, this is, seems to be kind of a recurring theme in the last little bit. But you know, we have some interesting constraints just by the fact that anyone who has ownership interest in the firm has to be an attorney. Because you know, normally, there'd be a COO or a CFO or you know, some HR person who would probably be thinking about this and whatever that ends up who is filling that role in that level is probably going to be an attorney first. And that's, you know, why we see a lot of homogeneity in the, the thinking, in my opinion, at least. But um, I think it's also worthwhile too, for all of the small business owners listening to this too, it might be worth thinking about how we can communicate this to teams. Like we've had situations where, you know, people don't realize that the money that we have to collect people, you know, there's consequences that doesn't happen on time. And that can be super real. And like, I don't think there's much of a drawback to letting employees know this. And sometimes they'd be really stoked to understand that they're producing a huge amount. And, you know, if they're scared about <laughs> like losing money for the business, they probably should be. So like, it's, it's good to have, you know, that transparency, I think is just something that a lot of people use. And then kind of like shifting a little bit to like, what kind of carryover do you see from, you know, being able to understand this stuff in one's career at a big law firm and, and eventually striking out to one's own? Well, I'll use myself as an example, Jan. I came from 
large legal practice where, again, I had so much of that infrastructure, so much of that uh, financial office, the IT office, the, the people that supported me. I didn't have to think too much about that, but pivoting to my own business, one of the things I really needed to think about was, who's my target client base? What do I need to be charging? And how do I test that, that hypothesis about what the market will bear for my services? I talked to people, I asked them, I experimented with things. I still continue to pivot my business. I'm sure you and other small business owners do the same thing I do, looking at, okay, if this isn't working or we could do something else, how could we scale this? You've founded businesses, you've scaled them. You make a lot of mistakes along the way. You also learn from them. That's something you get a little bit more chance to do by default as a solopreneur or a small business owner. You really do have the opportunity and the challenge of sitting there thinking about how do I do this? But I reached out to a lot of people. I talked, for example, before launching a coaching practice to other coaches who had similar profiles to what I was doing. And I got their input on what worked for them or what they thought had been a great way to begin or how they scaled over the first couple of years of their practice. And I still continue to work with them. I do a number of calls with people that are either further along than I am, or sometimes even in the same place than I am as a coach and trying to get their input on how they think I can approach a certain question. Maybe a certain line of marketing is not working out. Okay. What did they do with that? How did they try something else? Some of that entrepreneurship is, is more of an opportunity as a business owner than it is as a lawyer in a large law firm, because you really do have to take it on yourself, but you learn a lot through trial and error. You also really have to use your resources and go out and find those, including in your peer group. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting you talk about the pricing thing too, because I see something that happens all the time with um, new attorneys or people. And like, you know, the unfortunate truth is we find people who made this decision like three or five years ago when they started their practice that are still kind of getting um, hamstrung by this, but talking about pricing, honestly, I can't tell you how many people are in a really bad position right now because their pricing was, hey, you know, I'm going to start off at the bottom of the market and work my way up when I reach some uh, predetermined level where I allow myself to charge that much. <laughs> but, um, you know, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. So as far as the price testing, how'd you end up going about that with the coaching? How would you recommend somebody who's starting off their, their law practice for a new time start on that? I, I think what I did is also translatable to law practice. Again, I surveyed a number of people that I knew. I had really in-depth discussions about how they started, what they saw as the pricing range, how that might be different based on my expertise, my knowledge, my background. The other thing I did was to try some different pricing structures. Not all of my pricing structures are the same as when I first started coaching. And it depends a little bit upon the type of work I'm doing. I'm sure it's true for your company and your business as well, depending on how work or what services you're providing, it varies. The other thing that I think is critical is to not undersell yourself. It's really heard you when you said, you know, you run into a lot of attorneys that I'll start at the bottom of the market. It's really hard to come up from the bottom of the market. And it's hard to say to clients, Well, I had to make a significant price jump because I was really underpriced when I was first working with you. And the client's thinking, no, I thought that was a great price when you were first working with me. I I don't see the difference here. There's, of course, a balance between overpricing yourself in the market and putting yourself at a different rate than you could even command if you were 50 years of experience and, 
and you had a different platform. But I think you have to find that balance. So I would say not to underprice yourself, ask peers about the pricing and not be afraid to experiment with different pricing types and to test how they're working and to see what your ROI is on that. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. And then as far as um, kind of going a little bit full circle this, like one of the things that um, we talk with clients a lot, and there's a lot of different ways to do that, but I think the price sensitivity of a market is, is inversely related to how unique your offer is. So if you have the situation where you've really, really done a great job of niching down and getting a really established brand, then, you know, they're not going to just leave you for the other person who has the same type of law on door, because, you know, what are they going to do? They don't have somebody who has a specialist in the thing that they want. So I think a lot of the, the stuff around the personal branding kind of will cement that. And also just to, to tell people too, your ability to command a higher price is going to change over time. It's absolutely important to do this stuff at the beginning, but you don't really know what kind of clout you've amassed since you last changed your pricing until you try it. So, and I think it's like one of the easiest levers, you know, going back to the profitability stuff, if you can get an extra $500,000 per retainer, that can make a huge difference in growing your firm. And there's so many things you can do with that. I'll give you a great example of that, that I've seen with a number of attorneys and clients, attorneys that are really service oriented towards their clients and are not willing to drop them for the next shiny client that comes through the door. Clients are very sensitive to that. And clients sense very keenly when you're just waiting for a newer, sexier, shinier offering to come through, or the next client that is willing to put you on a really high profile case. And so you start kind of moving your work away from that first client that has been loyal to you, has done a lot of work with you. I think clients appreciate when you instead say, look, you're valuable to me. I'm not going to treat you as a second tier client. Maybe someone else's because you're second tier in the renewable energies industry and everybody's looking for the first tier renewable energies client. Yeah. But I'm not going to treat you that way because I view you as a valued client. I view our work together as important. Those are clients that when you come back to them later and you do need to ask for a price increase, you've got a real basis for saying, I provide something valuable to you. I don't treat you as second class or I don't wait for your work to, to slow down so that I can take on a new client. That's a great instance where I think clients, it's not so much about loyalty as it is seeing incredible value for service that clients are willing to pay for. Yeah, 100%. And like you almost owe it to yourself to raise your rates at that point too, just because I think, you know, one of the worst combos I ever see is the combination of, hey, my differentiation is that I'm going to answer your phone call at 11 a.m. on a Sunday and I <laughs> charge bargain basement rates. People need to take accounting of what value that they end up providing people. And then for the most part, like, you know, speaking personally, but also stuff that we've had from clients, we made recommendations for people to make price increases. And I, I tell people every single time, the first time you say that at the end of the consultation, you're going to be scared stiff. But I guarantee once somebody says yes, you're never going to move down again. And just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things you just kind of have to try. So no, I think that's, that's fantastic advice. Now, kind of moving on, like once somebody's out of potentially having more of a, you know, internal, large, bigger lock career. How do you carry over some of that personal branding stuff into hanging your own shingle? How would you recommend people that are starting off um, on their own, like start to kind of get those uh, messages out there in the market in a way that's going to benefit them? Well, one of the ways that you do that is you're often starting out solo or maybe with a couple of others, let's say in a small law firm, and your reputation precedes you. You're doing something new. Uh, maybe you used to be the chair of XYZ law firm, and now you're the 
uh, co-partner, managing partner at a much smaller law firm, but people still remember your brand from the prior place that you work. That's largely why you're launching. Maybe if you have your name on your business, your business is really dependent on your name and people knowing who you are and how you work. So you've got to remember to bring that brand with you. You've got to remember, how does it infuse what I do? Do I need to even amp it up? If my brand is that I am always there for my clients and I'm not letting them down, even when things get tough or when I have a tight deadline on something and it requires me to have my team work the weekend, I'm still having my team work the weekend. I'm not going to say, well, I'm a smaller business now. I have to say, I can't have the people that can put the time in. That's a tough place to be because now you've changed your brand. And you have to really ask yourself, am I providing the support that I need to be providing for people to keep paying for that brand? Most people that are moving out to a law practice on their own are doing so because they bring a really strong reputation. They bring a really strong sense and marketability, and they're known in the market for certain things. And if they start losing that by saying, well, you know, I don't really need to have that same kind of practice, or maybe I can cut back on some things, or I can not have quite the strong associates that I have. I don't need to hire quite the level of lawyers that I want to have. You may be cutting back on that brand and you may be diminishing. And all it takes is a couple of little chinks in that armor for clients to say, this is, this is not really the lawyer that I used to work with. This is not really the Jan I used to work with. It doesn't feel the same. And, and I feel like I'm compromised. Yeah. And I'll say too, just kind of from a meta perspective too, going back to our stuff on pricing, you know, making sure you have the resources to fulfill on the promises that you're making to clients is absolutely key, which is one of the many reasons I harp on this pricing stuff like so, so hard. But no, it's interesting. It's, you know, we have a situation where, and, and here's the thing, I'll be real. Like we talk about a lot of stuff, you know, our background at KCL is in, you know, direct response advertising online too. So we almost start with a situation where, you know, we're, we're assuming people don't know anything about us, but word of mouth is so important. And I know this is probably the first time I've said this out loud on the podcast. We have a much much easier time marketing for people to have a fantastic reputation, right? And even with the situation where you have that brand message and you're able to put it out there and you deliver on it, then the one client you get might be three clients for you, where it's one client for your competitors. So like being able to invest this stuff is, is so fantastic. And like, I'll also say this too, just, you know, as kind of a recommendation, being able to think about this stuff with clarity and asking the questions on this stuff, like we were talking about earlier in this presentation is absolutely key to being able to implement like a strategy like this. I think the worst justification you can have for a price increase is everybody else is doing it or we have a price increase every year. Now, you may have a price increase every year. A lot of law firms do. They take their rates up, everybody resets, but you need to have a better, more compelling reason for your clients to pay those rates just then. Everybody else in the industry is doing it and we do this every year. You need to be able to really think, what are the things I can point out to my clients that brought them value this year? We were able to give you flat rates that really gave you predictability, for example, in what you were going to pay. And there were outcome-based as much as we could do that within the confines of legal ethics. So if we were able to finish a matter under budget by a certain amount, you gave us a bonus. If we went over budget, we bore the downside of that for you. Those are value type things that you can say. You can also say, remember, you know, when nobody else was available to work on this on Christmas Eve or uh, July 4th, we were there for you. We had a whole team that we put together that got this done on very short notice. You want to be able to have specific things to point to, 
not just to say everybody else is doing it or this is par for the industry. Yeah, hundred percent. And like whenever, you know, I guess this is kind of like a recurring theme. It's just like, wherever you have the value, you're always able to ask for, you know, part of that. And that's, that's, that's sort of it at the end of the day. Okay, Laura, this has been an awesome conversation, but we're getting towards the end of our time. As far as the next step, if people are resonating with this, what's the best way to get into your world? So best way to contact me is check out my website, lauraterrell.com, L-A-U-R-A-T-E-R-R-E-L-L. You can go there and you can set up a brief meeting with me to get a mini coaching session free. Just do a consult, get a little bit of mini coaching, see how we fit, see how we mesh. The other thing I would say is I have a blog that I update fairly regularly on there with just my thoughts about legal industry, life professionally in general. Great thing to check out just to get a sense of kinds of things that are on my mind and the kinds of things I think about. So that's a great way to get in touch. Again, first session is a, is a free consult with me to, to see whether you'd like to work together. Okay, fantastic. And I'll also say this too, you know, whenever we have a situation where we have, you know, a guest who's talking about this stuff, I always say like, Laura, there's always something to be gained by looking for how you're going to be positioning your brand as well too. So if you guys for sure check out the blog and I think it's going to be some, some awesome stuff there. All right, guys. So Laura, thank you so much. But for everybody else, I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.